Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The son of an illiterate factory worker, Satnam Sanghera began school unable to speak English and went on to become one of our most cherished and influential living writers. His memoir, The Boy with the Top Knot, was turned into a major TV series and his book Empire Land has transformed the way that many of us think about the history of Britain. It was also the subject of a previous How To Academy podcast, co-starring William Dalrymple. But this episode isn't about either of those books. It's about his novel Marriage Material, an intergenerational tale of love, loyalty and betrayal set in his native Wolverhampton. He joined us in person at The Conduit for the first in a regular series of book clubs celebrating contemporary fiction. He was in conversation with Hannah McGuinness. Why did you decide to rewrite this to 2022? Oh, we re- I didn't rewrite it. I mean, yes. um, Why republish. Did they... Why did you decide to, to sort of rebring it out? Oh, actually, it's never. An authors get very little say in this. <laughs> uh, the publishers realised that actually Empire Land, my last book, sold very well, and they want to remind people that I had written a novel <laughs> and tricked them into buying it thinking it was new, basically. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I think as a writer, honesty, yeah, great. Okay, I didn't. Well, I mean, as a writer, I, I mean, I had to sit down this afternoon and kind of skim read it because uh, you kind of forget. Although, having said that, I mean, I feel like I'm undermining my own book. It was, I think, the hardest book I wrote, and it's a thing I'm proudest of. But weirdly, I guess my first book, my memoir, did quite well, and my third book, Empire Land, did quite well, and this one didn't do so well, I guess, and. It's always been frustrating me because it was the hardest thing I did by some miles. But um, I'm glad it's having a second wind. And actually, it's being adapted for the stage in, the, in, in Birmingham. Oh, I'm so glad to hear yeah. that. I was thinking all the way through, I wonder if it was, you know, you'd had talks with screen or stage. Cause it yeah, it itself. was with the BBC for a couple of years and they uh, cocked it up, basically. <laughs> yeah, which is what they do. Sorry if there's BBC people here. Well, they're probably all at Soho House, aren't they? Um, yeah. Why was it the hardest thing to write? Um, I think it's because uh, I'm a journalist and, I mean, you're a journalist too, and I, paradoxically, making stuff up is really hard. So I had to approach it like a journalist. So, you know, I was set in a shop, so I actually worked in four or five shops in the Midlands. I mean, I couldn't imagine it for some reason. I went to interview people who worked as salesmen in the 1960s and 70s in the Midlands because there was a character who did that. I did a load of research about the political background and, uh, yeah, so I had to kind of almost turn it into a journalism project. Yeah, you say in that introduction that it's a work of fiction, but you tackled it like the biggest news assignment of your life. Yeah. How long did all that research take working in... Uh, you know what, the whole thing took four or five years. And uh, I think people see... That's generally how long books take for me. I think people see books and they think, oh, that must be, you must have knocked it out on the side. And some people do, some of my colleagues do, but I can't, I'm very slow. And it takes me a long time to immerse myself in the world and this in particular I had to like recreate a whole universe which I wasn't familiar with um and I didn't grow up in a shop so I didn't have all those memories to kind of take yeah. so I had to reimagine it all um you say that you were pre- in, in your introduction that you were pregnant with it but that it was the old wives tale by Arnold Bennett that allowed you to get going that really kind of shaped it and I wonder if you could tell us um, about the role that that book played in inspiring this one. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I wrote my memoir and 
I had the positive problem that when you write a memoir, people ask you about your life all the time. Like, it doesn't stop. And so about five years after the memoir, I was like, I have to write another book because I've got to change the conversation. And uh, unfortunately, people just thought this was sec- the second part of my memoir. And so they all assumed I'd grown up in a shop at some point, even though my memoir said I didn't. And uh, I guess it's because it's narrated of someone who's kind of creative and my kind of age that people assumed that. But I wanted to write a different story, and also I wanted to write an intergenerational family drama. I just didn't have the, the kind of structure, and I picked up this book by Arnold Bennett. Has anyone read The Old Wives' Tale? And generally, no one has. So <laughs> I won't be surprised. It was actually a very popular book in the 70s. You're all too young for it. It was written in the 1920s, and yet it's set even further back. It's set in the 1850s, late 19th century, and it's about, it's about these two sisters growing up, growing up in a shop and then, you know, falling, kind of falling out and losing touch with each other, but then meeting again in old age. And I read it, and uh, I found there's so much in it that I could identify with as a Punjabi son of immigrants. You know, the obsession with hard work, the corner shops, which a lot of Asians have, the obsession with marriage, which is a massive thing in Asian communities, and also the obsession with making money and the slight distrust of creativity, which I definitely had, and by the sounds of it, so did Rishi Sunak and his parents. <laughs> um, and so I felt like I was reading a Punjabi story, even though it was a very English story written by a writer who was hugely popular in his lifetime. He was like the J.K. Rowling of his time. But as soon as he died, no one picked up another book by him ever again. It's quite tragic. But at least he had a good no, life. I, yeah, I was going to say, better that way than the way the it way often around, yeah. happens, where you become very popular when you're never around to see God, it. God, yeah, that'd be so annoying. <laughs> you know? Well, luckily you don't have to experience that. Um, so you liken yourself to him in the sense that you both uh, dabbled in lots of different literary genres. Um, and you say that that sort of worried you in, in the sense that did that look like you hadn't kind of committed to one thing. But there is a essence throughout all your work, isn't it? This sort of historical backdrop to it all. Yeah, I kind of, I didn't really think about it until I looked back. But I guess, in a way, all my books have been about history. So my memoir is about my family's history. Uh, Empire Land is about me working out you know, British history. And in between, this is an attempt to really understand the, the kind of immigrant experience in post-war Britain, which I guess there's a lot of textbooks about that, but not many novels. And so I wanted to capture that. And actually, one of the another inspirations for it was during the 2011 riots, which no one ever talks about now. Remember them? Great times. <laughs> no one talks about them, but they were a big deal at the time. I remember... David Starkey, the historian, appearing on Newsnight. Were you, were you on the programme then? I, uh... Did you, you I, interviewed him? You no, were the I, but I, uh, I can't, him. No, I can't talk about that. I can't believe you brought that up. No, yes, I was there, and I... Uh, yeah, I mean, I did, I had, I, was the, I had to book it, so I've regretted that for a long time. But in a way, it was a massive success, because it went viral before Twitter was really a thing. And, um, I remember being, going away out of the country afterwards, and people were talking about it on the plane. That person, whoever booked him, deserves to lose her job. And I was, <laughs> it was, anyway, it was a yeah, it was a very interesting story in thing, itself. Actually, well, you, in, in, in which case, you inspired my novel, you know, because uh, David Starkey appeared on Newsnight, and I don't know if anyone remembers, he basically said the, the 2012 riots, 2011 riots happened, uh, proved that Enoch Powell was right. And uh, I think I grew up in Wolverhampton where Enoch Powell was a local MP, and people forget what that speech was about because it's become so famous and so mythologised. But essentially, he was saying, look at all these Sikhs, I'm Sikh, look at people like my parents and me, uh, look at all these children of immigrants turning up at school unable to speak English, i.e. me, and look how they're ruining Britain. And people forget that speech was about the Sikhs. You know, it was about us. And the Sikhs are now regarded as a very successful immigrant community. If you look up Sikhs in Britain on Wikipedia, the first line, which I've done, the first line is Sikhs are one of the most successful uh, immigrant communities in Britain. But yet, he used us as an example of everything that could go wrong. And he was very much proved wrong in terms of what happened in Wolverhampton. So I wanted to tell... Wolverhampton story and also the story of that speech. So there's a lot going on. I wanted to also tell, show how the, the corner shop has changed over 50 years. You know, it, it offered immigrants 
a way out of the racist job market. And yet, it exposed them to racism because, you know, in a way, you know, Asian shopkeepers are the great symptom of, of multiculturalism. Everyone has an Asian, Asian shopkeeper in their life, don't they? And I remember Norman Tebbit, when he was saying that multiculturalism had failed, said, I want to make an exception for my Asian shopkeeper because he's great, you know? <laughs> but that's a typical attitude. I think the Asian shopkeeper is a very interesting figure. And so I wanted to take that and kind of make a novel out of it. The Enoch Powell thing is so interesting, the way you explore it, because two of your characters, who you wouldn't expect to, defend him, essentially, Tanvir Mm. um, and Sarinda. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about that, the sense, the most important one, perhaps, being Tanvir, in the way that he... It's such a nuanced character where you come to your teaching of, of the history in schools. And he has a very complex attitude to that in the sense that he, he feels because of the complicated caste system, he, he, he sees that in a negative light. Mm. Um, yeah, actually, you just reminded me of something very strange that happened three years after the book. Because, yeah, I mean, I went into all that stuff which happened. One of the things that inspired Enoch Powell's speech was the bus driver's turban. You've read the book, The Turban Dispute. And about three years after this, I was invited by Radio 4 to make a documentary about the speech. And we found the bus driver. We found him, the guy who uh, turned up at work with a turban, got fired, uh, made it into a civil rights thing. You know, there are marches in India. He now is quite rich living in a very posh part of Wolverhampton, there is such a thing. And uh, we arrived, and we were sitting in this huge living room about this size with two chairs on either end. And uh, I said, tell me about Enoch Powell. And he said, love the guy. Loved him. He helped, he helped me. He helped me get my brother over from India. He was a great local MP, and I voted Conservative all my life, which says a lot. And actually, I try to reflect those kind of attitudes in the book, but... I couldn't believe that happened. It's, it was absolutely amazing. Another, you know, link, of course, is this idea that's so so strongly emphasised in Empire Land: the fact that we don't learn about uh, Asian history at school, and again, that comes through a lot in this book. Tanvir nearly writes or does write that letter to say, "Hang on, I don't want my children learning about Asian history because of its complicated, because of the caste system." And of course, Mr. Dan, you know, is is emphasising that he wants that. So I'm interested having read Empire Land and talked to you about that and know how passionate you are about that, why you wanted to have that sort of more nuanced perspective towards teaching history in schools in this Yeah, book. I mean, that's because I think, you know what, this is a very important question at the moment because we, we see all these racially diverse uh, candidates for the Conservative uh, you know, election and people are saying, oh, this means racism is over. But guess what? <laughs> it's much more complicated. You know, Empire was about dividing all... There were millions of Indians who loved empire, you know. Even the ones who fought empire found some space to have affection for Queen Victoria. And that was... I'm looking into that at the moment. And there were riots, you know, in Amritsar around 1913. And the rioters made sure that no one damaged the statue of Queen Victoria because they were like, it's not her, it's the state. But that is quite a common attitude. And there is a conservative tendency in immigrant communities, you know, the concern with, you know, extended families and, you know, being conservative socially and so on. So it's complicated, isn't it? I think I wanted to reflect the fact that there's there's massive uh, variation within Asian communities when it comes to politics. We're not one block. But is, would you say that's generational in terms of sort of the loyalty or this feel, sort of feeling of loyalty, they feel like they have to be loyal, as you said, um, you know, support empire. But do you think that still happens in, in third-generation immigrants? Or? No, I've noticed there's a real difference. You know, on some level, I mean, my mother thinks she is Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> I mean, she identifies so much. And there's so much to... I see why she identifies. You know, there's extended families living together, arranged marriages. <laughs> the Queen apparently eats uh, meals from Tupperware, which is what my mum does as well. <laughs> And uh, I think there's a load of identification with that, isn't there? Mm. Talking about your, your mother, another really strong theme in the book is um, these brilliant 
kind of women, these brilliant women who you write about. Again, you say in the introduction, formidable Asian women whose battles and achievements I want to pay tribute to. And these these women in your book, kind of in their in their way, breaking with tradition and defying social norms. So I wonder again why why it was important to write about that and whether there was a you know, whether it's uncomfortable sort of exposing the rules, the old sayings, for example, women lack wisdom, women are like an old coat or shoes and you can replace them when you want, which are the old sayings that the women have had to live with. Yeah, no, and thank you for spotting that. And actually, I was thinking on the way here, I probably wouldn't do write this book now because I'd be worried about being accused of cultural appropriation by writing from the perspective of women, right? And I think a lot of male authors can feel that now. And I think there's valid arguments. But I wanted to pay tribute to, you know, Asian women who are stereotyped. I wanted to, this book to basically break down a lot of stereotypes. I wanted to break down the stereotype of the corner shop owner. But I wanted to break down the stereotype of the Asian woman who's seen as this placid, you know, passive person. And the women I know are not like that. <laughs> the Asian women I know are amazing and terrifying and brilliant businesswomen. And at the same time, have raised seven children. And they're incredible. You know, they're like, my mother, I feel like, is like Nelson Mandela. And there's so many people like her. And so I wanted to pay tribute to that and represent those people. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Generally, did you want to sort of talk about a culture that you say, again, you say that the Punjabi culture is defiantly unself-examining. Looking at the women, it's sort of almost misunderstood. And it feels like a lot of this from the self-sacrifice of them, from this um, great sense of pride, um, the food, there's a lot about the food that you really wanted to kind of almost discover the culture through writing it. Yeah, I mean, and also I think... Make sense of it, you know. Yeah, and also I think my generation, going back to the question I didn't really answer, we have more time. You know, I feel like my parents' generation, they're working so hard to make it in this country. There was no time for reflection. So they, when you ask my parents or people of their generation about Enoch Pyle, they're like, I can't remember. You know, I was working 16 hours a day trying to feed you. And uh, we have more time. And I feel like my generation are much more political. And the generation after me are even more political. And I think it's our duty to tell their stories because they didn't keep notes. They didn't talk about it. I think anything to do with racism they thought was embarrassing, you know, a waste of time. You just kind of take it. Whereas my generation don't want to take it. And the next generation definitely don't want to take it, you know. And so I think that's why you're getting a kind of a load of, of work and art on this kind of area. I think it's important while they're still alive to talk to them and get their stories out of them, even though, like the Queen, they don't necessarily want to talk about it. Particularly, they don't want to talk about partition, which, again, in the novel, Sarinda, when her father dies, feels this great sadness that she never spoke to him about what he lived through, about partition, and they didn't speak to their children about it because of some, perhaps, trauma or... But that's something very important to you outside of the novel, isn't it, to make sure that, you know, it's encouraged, as you're saying, to speak about those parts of history that are still untaught and untalked about. I would say, actually, this is just general advice. If if I give you one thing tonight, uh, it is to go and talk to your elderly relatives and parents. I think the best thing I ever did was interview my parents and my whole family at great length for the memoir. It means I've got recordings there. And one of the most common regrets that they do surveys on these things when people die is that you didn't sit down and get their story. And when they've gone, they're gone. And it's awkward, isn't it? It's like, it's very un-English to sit down and say... How did you feel, Mum? 
you know, and uh, that generation don't want to talk about it either. So you've got to get over a lot of awkwardness on their behalf and your own. I think it's one of the best things you'll ever do. And I know, I know there's kind of companies out there which will write, yeah. kind of do biographies now. They will write the book for you. I wish I had that service available. Yeah. It would have saved me a lot of time. <laughs> um, but I really value the fact that I did that. And this book was a, an effort to continue that because I couldn't really share all the stories I had in the memoir for various legal reasons. <laughs> so um, you said lots of people kept asking you at the start, you know, it, confusing this with your memoir, but you have said quite a lot of things that suggest that perhaps there is quite a lot of you in there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not that angry about it, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it's a nice problem to have, at least it's been read. And uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, a lot of books are autobiographical. And I used to uh, be very anxious about revealing myself because I was an FT journalist and I don't know what kind of journalism training you had but journalism training is all about reducing your own voice right especially the BBC it's about being neutral almost you don't want the listener to know who you are and similarly you don't want anyone to know who's writing the news story the personality has to be defeated but then to write a memoir is, is like to do the opposite but I've realised there's great power in that in that you can talk about really terrible, awkward subjects if you put yourself into it. So schizophrenia, in the case of my memoir, and you know, imperial history in, in relation to Empire Land, it's actually a very powerful thing to use your own story. And talking about your own story, obviously Wolverhampton uh, plays a huge part in this. And I know that you did a lot of research kind of there. And I wonder how your relationship with the place did it change? What did it do to your relationship with Wolverhampton writing the book and or, or even looking back at back at it now? Yeah, actually, that's a very good question. I, I, I can go back to Arnold Bennett in a way. Arnold Bennett was a writer from Stoke, 34 miles up the road. And he left when he was 18 to be a journalist, a bit like me, and never went back. Never went back. And yet I'd say about 60% of his books were about Stoke. Even when he was living in Paris, he was writing about Stoke. <laughs> You know, and I feel the same. I wanted to get the hell out of Wolverhampton, like a lot of people do. And uh, I kind of, I slagged you off, said awful things about it in print. And uh, yet now, I've more or less written three books about it. I've written the Wolverhampton trilogy, which uh, the, the world doesn't need. And uh, I never thought I'd write. But what, it's, it's quite a common thing. The thing you resist as a child is a thing that you realise defines you. And I'm now, you know, I'm now very obsessed with Wolverhampton and and kind of, I'm making a podcast at the moment about leveling up and yeah it's like I really care about Wolverhampton I really want it to do well and it's quite odd because it's become one of the targets of this government for leveling up I think Michael Goh, Boris Johnson, Robert Jenrick have all been there in the last few months you know and it's something I know a lot about so it's quite strange yeah so you don't agree with um, the character in your book, Rinder, who says that Wolverhampton is always trying to be Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when yeah. the character who you might loosely be based on gets very protective about Wolverhampton and takes her on a scenic tour. You know, I don't remember any of this stuff. I just, uh, um, but yeah, I, was, I think the full quote was something like, uh, Birmingham's always trying to be the city of the future and Wolverhampton yeah, is always trying to be Birmingham. Yes, I remember that. Because that was my own thought, I think, <laughs> once upon a time. Um, yeah, I mean, Wolverhampton suffers because it's in the shadow of the mighty metropolis of Birmingham, which Londoners, I always, it always pisses me off that Londoners don't realise Birmingham's a second city. Yeah. Most people think it's Manchester, or they might think it's Edinburgh, but actually Birmingham is actually officially the second city. That means a lot to us in the Midlands. We, we hold on to that, and then you leave, and no one cares. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm going to be intrigued to know how the Commonwealth Games go in Birmingham. I think they start in two weeks' time. And it's a kind of... Because Birmingham and Wolverhampton are both cities that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the empire, you know? And the, they are such multicultural places. And to have the Commonwealth Games, the Empire Games, in Birmingham, it's going to be a very interesting experience, I think. Yeah. Hopefully COVID won't kind of... COVID returning. Oh, is it back? Yeah, it's back. I mean, it never went away, but it's back in serious force. Anyway, we don't talk about that here. Um, it's not really back. Um, 
So it's a, a super spreader event. Yeah. Momentarily. Oh, no, it's not. It's not really back. Um, but um, sh- shortly, I really uh, would love to hear your questions because the point of this is definitely um, book club is, is not to just have me asking my questions. But I also do want to ask you about, um, obviously, education, again, is, is hugely important in this book. And there's a, a, a moment where um, your kind of, uh, Arjan talks about um, effortless superiority. Mm. Do you remember this bit? Um, yeah. I feel like even if you don't remember it, I just am so interested in your thoughts on this idea, whether you still feel like you're surrounded by these people, maximum effort and minimal gain, which is something um, he sees at school and is just so uh, at odds with this idea of, you know, trying really hard. And it's, it's just such a, a sort of a privileged way to, to be. And yeah, that's what it's, a, it's a Boris Johnson. I mean, Boris Johnson's <laughs> the ultimate illustration of effortless superiority, which is this, actually originally an Italian idea. And it was the idea that you you do brilliant things, but you show no effort. It doesn't look like you've tried. And the ultimate manifestation of this was uh, Philip Sidney, the poet, who apparently, as he lay dying, uh, recited an epic poem. And uh, it was written down and published before, as he died. And uh, Boris Johnson's a bit like, he wants to be like that, you know. He wants to appear like he's doing brilliant things, that like he's a genius, and making no effort. The classic sign there's a shirt hanging out at the back of your trousers. And I noticed this was a massive thing at the Financial Times and the Times. The more higher up you were, the scruffier you were, you know? And it was the complete opposite mentality to being a child of immigrants where you arrive like in the smartest suit, perfect tie. And I remember going, when I started the FT as a reporter, all the editors would comment on how smart I was all the time. And I was like, obviously, you know what I mean? Because I make an effort. But I, I, it took me a while to understand that actually that's not what people necessarily respect. They want you to achieve brilliant things whilst looking like a wreck, like Boris Johnson. <laughs> but I think we've now seen the failure of that idea. Yeah, and it, it, it's just so interesting exploring the book because it just is the anathema to the sort of work ethic that lots of the characters put in and, and you know you realize what a ridiculous what a ridiculously lucky uh, way it is to approach something to sort of hope that you look like you're not yeah. caring but immigrant culture is all about your immigrant parents so it's all about look how hard i worked for you you have to work really hard and actually the surprising thing was to see that attitude in arnold bennett's book you know that protestant work ethic mm-hmm. and a lot of working class communities have that thing and going back to this smartness, you know, on a Friday night out in Liverpool or Wolverhampton, everyone's really dressed up. Mm. Like Oasis, the working class band, were always really smart compared to Blur, you know, <laughs> who were more middle class and more scruffy. Dare I say, I think it might, women are less likely, I think, to have that sort of, I can, I can just nail it without trying attitude. But yeah, Are there any <laughs> people in public life, any women? Maybe, um, I really love her, this is not criticism, Mary Beard, slightly scruffy. <laughs> um, but no, not many others. Um, I think it would be good to, um, because, <clears throat> to uh, extend it over to you, because you've all made the, uh, yes, at the right time, made the effort to kind of um, look and think about the book. So please do put your hand out. We've got a roving microphone. My name is Rahini. Uh, lovely to meet you. And before I ask my question, I just wanted to say, big fan. Um, and actually, I think it's really important to say, I think you're absolutely right about my grandparents' generation not having the time to reflect and that makes total sense. And it's part of the reason I know I'm so privileged today is because of the sacrifices that they made. But I think having our story as a community written both in fiction and nonfiction, for me as a third generation immigrant, really made me feel seen. I think the first time I felt seen was when I watched Bend It Like Beckham. Um, and then when I read Empire Land, I felt so incredibly seen to the point that it actually inspired my undergrad dissertation. And you're quoted in my undergrad dissertation, so, you know. Um, Have we... You, did you send me an email? Did we communicate? Uh, I don't... Th- you might be quoted in someone else's oh, dissertation. Okay. Um, unfortunately... We've got a competition. <laughs> I waited to give you credit in person. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to say, I think that's really powerful. But interestingly, thinking about identity of our generation, so I'm 22 myself. Funnily enough, I lost my grandmother a year year ago, almost exactly. Um, She was born in Pakistan and crossed the border in 47. And the next day after I lost my grandmother, I started my first job and that was in the civil service. And I had this real moment of what is my identity in terms of 
I'm an Indian person, but I don't speak the language. I've spent my whole life trying to learn how to integrate. And I feel like I've done that very well. But what does it mean to be Indian now for my generation? I'm not expecting you to answer the question. (laughs) But I was wondering if you'd given any thought to kind of how our community best preserves the best elements of what it means to be Indian and our history, but equally take the leap forward and, and embrace this new level of integration that our grandparents and the generation before us have afforded us. A big question. But yes, yeah, a big question. <laughs> a but I think you raise an interesting issue. I mean, I think part of, I think the debate and the sophistication of it has really improved. And I think in the 90s, people kind of put black people and Asian people together. And it was reflected in TV shows. Remember The Real McCoy? Mm-hmm. It's before your time. And it was a bunch of black comedians, a bunch of Asian comedians all together. And then there was Goodness Gracious Me, which was just Asians. But now I think we're in a time where people understand the difference between Bangladeshi Muslims and East Asian African Asians who are in the cabinet and the different levels of privilege I mean, it's, the Asian community is incredibly, um, it's broad in terms of its socio-economic background. And so Bangladeshi Muslims are the most underprivileged group in Britain. And then at the other end, you've got British Hindus who are one of the most successful groups in Britain, second only, I think, to British Jews. You know, 93% of them, last time I looked, were in the managerial sector. And so... I think Britain is getting more sophisticated and understanding that difference. And it needs to, because there's so much difference. I feel like I've not answered your question. But, but it is a very big question. <laughs> um, I just, um, hello. Um, I just wanted to touch on the thing that you mentioned earlier about saying that you wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable writing this book today because of this sort of, I guess, this sort of intense scrutiny of quote-unquote authenticity and you know whether or not you feel that it's particularly strong for people who are from a minority background or conversely, at least in my experience, there are certain things I can get away with saying that my white friends can't. Mm. And, you know, so whether or not, you know, you feel that there's, you know, is there, you know, almost a bit of covering fire there that which then can be exploited to, you know, to enable you to comment on things? Yeah, I think it's getting harder. I think there's definitely been examples of things where it's gone too far. I've got to think about, uh, sensitivity readers, which publishing now, there's a lot of sensitivity readers. If, if you're brown, if you're writing about sensitive issues, they'll hire people to read it. And I think that's bad because publishers should be doing that. That's your job as an editor. You know what I mean? What are you doing if you're not checking these things? And But I do think things are getting a bit more difficult in that sense. But also I think it's a good thing. I think people are having to think hard, very hard, about how they represent people, about cliches, racist cliches, stereotypes, I would say it's mostly a good thing. And I know in the right-wing press, it's painted to be a terrible thing. That's kind of shutting out debate, but I don't necessarily see it that way. I think overall, it's good. You don't feel constrained by it? No, and actually, I would have thought hard about writing this. I might have. I'm thinking about it because there's someone I, I follow on Twitter who said he'd written an entire novel uh, from the perspective of an Asian woman and never published it because he thought it was appropriation. It's an interesting question. It's a very, so you don't think that you um, or authors generally should be able to, male authors should be able to write the female experience or, uh, um, you know, you I should think be right, authors outside should be able to write whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fundamentally, that has to be, you can never compromise on that. Mm. But also, authors can be criticised. And I, I see a lot of authors being oversensitive to criticism and freaking out. And actually, just take it. Well, not everything we do is perfect. If I wrote this book again, I, there's certain things I'd take out. I interviewed David Baddiel recently, and you know he, he was quite laddie about 20 years ago. And he, his books were being re-released, and he, he said he took out some things. I don't know any writer who wouldn't do the same. I mean, I would take out some jokes. Because you change. The world changes. It's no tragedy. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. I've got more questions, but it's not my turn. <laughs> Hello, I recognize you. I'm Susie. Oh. I don't know. I've met you once before, I think, in person, but briefly. Um, so I'm Susie. I also write and also write fiction and non-fiction. I've got a kind of writer's question. Um, but first, I absolutely recognise your point about effortless superiority because my mother used to criticise me for having chip nail varnish and told me that I wasn't posh enough for chip nail varnish and I needed to get a grip. Um, but one of the things I really loved about this book was how funny it was while also being really profound and serious. And I just wondered how natural and easy that was as a writer to do. Well, thank you. I mean, that's the weird thing is when you read something back, you don't notice the jokes because you've seen them a million times so that you don't find them funny yourself. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I sometimes see that as a failure, and I always have to put jokes into things. And, but now I realise that's a way of getting people, again, to talk about very difficult subjects by making it lighter and more accessible. I wouldn't pick up a book about schizophrenia or imperialism, really. I wouldn't have until recently. I have to now because I've made it my work. But um, I think it's a very disarming thing to do the books I really love are very clever, but also have jokes and have humor. And uh, I think it's a great thing. And it's really tragic. I think it's not tragic. It's unfortunate that a lot of comic writers don't get the respect they deserve. You know, I feel like people like Jonathan Coe are geniuses. I actually think that one of the best writers we've ever had is Sue Townsend. You know, honestly, in terms of a writer who's made me more happy than any other. Adrian Mole is like a literary... It's a miracle, isn't it? Oh, I yeah. feel really nostalgic, and you're making yeah. me think I should reread it because it's, it's always, so long ago. You can always reread it, and it always makes you laugh. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, she should have got the Booker Prize. You know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just finished the, your book on the bus uh, just before the final stop, so I've literally just finished <laughs> reading it, and I loved it. Um, I also have a writer's question. Um, you said this took you four or five years, and it was the hardest book you've written. I'd just love to uh, have an insight into how you write, what your process is, and, and what you did, <laughs> how you did it over those four, and five, four or five years. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Every writer writes differently. I know colleagues of mine, I envy them so much. You will begin a book at the start, end it, and get it done in three months. What I do is I write, I write the whole thing. I write a whole section at great length. So I'm writing a sequel to Empire Land. So for each theme, one of the themes I've just done, one chapter was 60,000 words. And then I'll go through it again and again, shortening it each time working out which bits I want to keep. And by the end, it'll be 7,000. That's a very convoluted way of writing. For me, writing is editing. And I think my brain doesn't work at that quick rate in the way Catelyn Moran's brain. She writes how she speaks and thinks, whereas I don't think I write how I think. And I think I speak in a much worse way. <laughs> that sentence in itself uh, says a lot. But, yeah, so I'm a real editor and, for, and I keep on going back, which makes it a very painful, long, tortuous process. Is your process like that? Um, I do a similar thing, actually. I, so I write as well. I just, like, shove it all out, and then I go back and review, review, review. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. it's better just to go, isn't it? Yeah, because if you start thinking about it, I feel like you're never going to start. Yeah. Just get it down, then, then delete the embarrassing bits. Yeah. Yeah. Morning, do you write in the morning, evening? Yeah, now I've got a system. So I write the hardest stuff in the morning because that's when I have the focus. Yeah. And then I do the more general editing or reading in the evenings and the afternoons. Yeah. Thank you for uh, the talk. And um, I wanted to talk about expression. So we run a little group where Asian men get together to talk. And it's really like pulling teeth <laughs> to start with, right? So you've, there's certain subjects which is kind of easy to kind of land on and then there's subjects which just get very very difficult as a concept now i just wanted to do your thought also because one of the things we've realized is that people go to america to start expressing themselves well and getting paid mm. and i've seen this with like a lot of eyes and, and a lot of successful people in the uk like i mean riz ahmed's a great example of this goes idris is a great example of this goes music art creativity so in terms of expression, what is happening in the UK where, you know, Asian and 
black communities don't feel like they can get rewarded for their thought. Yeah, I definitely recognize that as a phenomenon. People go to America. But I think there's something in the community as well. I mean, when I was researching my memoir, I thought, you know what, I'll find some Asian memoirs because, you know, you need to re- suss out the market and the competition and get some, steal some ideas. And I found there were almost no Asian memoirs. It's quite bizarre. And, but then I was really, actually, it's a Western form, the memoir. It's an American form more than a, isn't it? I mean, British memoirs aren't that big a thing either. American memoirs are huge. And I think it's reflective of that culture where people do reflect on their lives and they want examples and they want to read that stuff and they want to write it. But I think there's something in particular in the Asian communities. I mean, I'm generalizing hugely because all the communities are different. But a lot of the culture is about bringing your best foot forward. You know, like the massive weddings, the posh cars, the gold-plated Rolls Royces. You know, it's all about showing yourself in the best light and about gloating that your son is a doctor. And it's not about parading your problems and anxieties, which is what memoirs are. And what it sounds like, it's what your group is. But, yes, yeah, it is like pulling teeth, isn't it? But I think things are changing, and there are a lot of Asian, there are more Asian memoirists. There's definitely a lot of Asian novelists and uh, poets. I know, like, Rupi Kaur, like the biggest poet in the world. Do you come across her, her work? She's huge. She's got millions of followers. And uh, you've probably seen her stuff on Instagram. But she's Sikh woman from Canada, I think. So I think it's changing. But you're right, people tend to go to America. It's where it's easier to do. Hi. Um, Not a writing question, but I was having a conversation with someone who I think is probably the generation of your mom. And she was saying that she feels badly uh, for Indians like me because the thing about being a product of two cultures is that you lose both. You never get either to claim as your own. Um, And that just made me really sad. I thought, gosh, that's really, really sad. Uh, Has that been your experience, or do you think? No, it's Shruti, isn't it? Hello. It is. Hello. Nice to see you. No, I think that's ridiculous. I think what you do is you get to uh, bop in and out of various identities, which I think what most people do anyway, right? You're a mother at home, you're an executive at work, and I feel like... When I'm in Wolverhampton, I'm quite Indian. When I'm in London, I'm really not very Indian. Um, and I sometimes call myself a Londoner. Sometimes I'm really definitely a Wolfroonian, which is the word for someone from Wolverhampton. Um, I think that's the thrill of life now. It's rich. You get to dip in and out of cultures, and I, I feel sorry for people who don't get to do that. Um, but also that is what books are about. You know, They allow you to immerse yourself in other people's heads and lives which is why they're miraculous. And um, I think it's always got to be something you treasure and kind of celebrate. Very appropriate for this event. I am going to jump in with a question because we haven't really chatted about the sort of title, Marriage Material, and what you wanted people, I suppose, to take away from the idea of an arranged marriage. Because there are are moments in the book where there's, you know... uh, it's recognised as the easier option. Having the whole family on board and interested is ultimately what's important. But I, I wonder what impression you would hope the reader would go away with of the idea of an arranged marriage. Because you do say at the end, you know, love in the family has been too long a source of shame. And the impression I got was that that's what, what happens. Yeah, I mean, I guess Arnold Bennett's book and the, mine is ultimately what they are. They're a comparison of three different marriages. And unfortunately, I don't think you can generalize about marriage. I'd love to know what you guys came up with <laughs> earlier on about the secrets of a long marriage. But I think, I mean, the, mar- the titles caused me problems because marriage material basically echoes my memoir. My memoir was basically about avoiding an arranged marriage. I think that's why people got confused between the two. I actually meant it as a kind of reference to Anna Bennett's shop because it was a drapery. <laughs> I think I was going too far. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think... The great insight of my life has been, I think in my memoir, I went on and on about, you know, how I wanted to marry someone I loved of my own choosing, not who my parents picked for me. But actually, what I didn't realize, and I realized whilst writing this book, is what I actually wanted was to be left alone. You know what I mean? Actually being free. You don't have to get married. 
It is an option. It hadn't even occurred to me that you can not do it. And actually, I explored that with Sarinda. Who, yeah, I was going to say, she, yeah. says, she, she says those are got words, doesn't she? Maybe she, what she wanted was she say just to be left God? alone. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Um, I guess, yeah. But I really felt that. And I, I thought of, she was based on someone I know. And I slightly fell in love with her as a character. But there's, there are women like that who've defied the conventions and good on them. But it's quite hard. You talk about the you fell in love with her as a character, and just to pick up on these kind of kind of writing questions. I mean, I've heard of authors who the, do extraordinary things, getting to know their characters. H how do you do that with, with these? I mean, do you, some people sort of have conversations with them? How do you get to know the characters and have them so whole and complete as these are? Well, you take bits. I mean, you're not meant to say this, but you do take people from your life, and so Ranjit, who is the um, I don't know how to describe him. Anti-hero of the book was based on a, a cousin of mine. And uh, uh, he asked me, I told him, I told him, and uh, he said... He, he didn't beat you up? Or no, no, he didn't go quite go that far. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, so scene is what's he like? Something. And I said, well, you know, he's quite violent. <laughs> but Did funny, he read it? But funny, he says, I'm never going to read it, but cool. <laughs> Which is a very ranjit response. Um, but you do base it on people in your life and change it slightly. Um, does anyone else have another question? Yeah, just thinking, don't go away wishing. It's a very rare and wonderful opportunity to be able to ask. And he'll go back into his writer's hole after this and not come out until the next, the sequel's ready. Is this on? Yeah. yeah. Um, so my question is, how do you think that sort of ethnic minority narratives and literary expression will change over the next few decades as we approach a world in which there's more parity between different cultures and races? That's a very good question. I don't know how it's going to change, but it has changed in my lifetime. In that, I felt like when I started in journalism in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was basically an Asian of the year. Like one Asian <laughs> could have one hit book, and that was it. No one else was allowed, you know? And actually, I mean, I was, this is being filmed, as I might as well say. It, this book got optioned by the BBC after Top Knot, my, my memoir, did quite well. And eventually they decided not to do it, and they said... The reason we can't do it is we've just optioned Riz Ahmed, uh, who's done an intergenerational, he wants to do an intergenerational family drama. I was like, oh, okay. And guess what? They never made that. Because I interviewed Riz and he was like, oh yeah, that never happened. They probably told him a similar thing. But I think things are different now in that there's allowed to be uh, many of us doing different things. And there's not a particular idea of what an Asian or a black writer does. I think black people get, black writers get pigeonholed in, in such cliches and stereotypes, but people are challenging it. I feel like the next generation aren't as polite as I was, and they're angry and they write about it and they take it on. But that is, that is something we have to confront. But ultimately, I think what we, the stage we need to get to is where people of color get their books reviewed like white people's books. You know, they're, they're judged on the merit of the book alone and ethnicity doesn't come into it. We've got time for, yeah, time for one more. So I, I'm not um, looking at my phone, I'm just checking the time just in case. It looks um, like I'm just to pick up on the question about whether you should or shouldn't write women, I kind of, one of the things I really liked about the book was in fact the way you write women and that if you hadn't written the women, it would have been a really weird experience and you would have like reinforced a whole load of other stereotypes. Yeah. So I just, I know that you say that everybody, I agree with you, that everybody should write what they write. I mean, there is a danger of just becoming too pigeonholed, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and then that is a tendency we need to resist where everyone's got to have an authentic experience. The whole point of art is that it's about empathy, isn't it? The whole point of reading is about empathy. The whole point of writing is about empathy and putting yourself in someone else's place. So if you stop people doing that, you're on a, a road to ruin. But I agree. I guess I over, I, I kind of, I wouldn't not write the book. I think I would just think harder than I would have done 10 years ago. And I think that's probably a good thing. I said one more, but that, he answered it very succinctly. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please do this is of all the spaces to ask uh, a question well, what please i'm do. interested in is the um the difference in the generations and what you were talking about whereas i think 
I'm probably a bit older than you, but I'm the daughter of, a, of a, an immigrant who assimilated, and the next generation are not assimilating. Um, and I think it's quite powerful the way you present that in the book. And, and it tied in with your um, book, Empire Land, which, which I think is going to be a more powerful book than people actually realise. I was speaking to a headmaster yesterday who wants to introduce onto his um, curriculum, and he's at a state school in Feltham. And I said, read the book because I'm not sure people are actually going to be able to take it on board. So I don't really have a question. I wanted to thank you for meeting that midway point where you're allowing a generation not to have to assimilate anymore, but are allowed to just realize that we are all slightly different and Pakistanis are different from Indians, are different from Bangladeshis, who are different from um, African Indians. So, and, and all of you. So, so thank you for highlighting that. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. And I thank think you. Empire Land is being taught now, isn't it, in schools? And yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the government uh, aren't keen on what I say, but um, unfortunately... Well, this government, and who knows how long. Yeah, unfortunately, good job, they're out. And uh, <laughs> uh, also, academies and private schools don't need to follow the national curriculum, so some, lots of schools are using it. I think Penguin gave away... I think 15,000 copies, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing thing as a writer for your stuff to be taught. I mean, I think most people don't get, have that in their lifetime. So I'm going against my personality, which is to be miserable <laughs> and uh, forcing myself to enjoy the experience. I'm actually writing a kid's version, but I'm not meant to talk about it yet. Oh, and uh, yeah, I've really struggled with it. I've struggled with it because I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to downplay the violence because I think violence is a big part of empire. Yeah. But that's, I think it's going to be okay. So we're not allowed to tell anyone that? No, um, it's, it's going to be announced in a few weeks. But we, we will make sure that at every bookish event there's a secret in the room that no <laughs> one is allowed to tell. And if somehow you do betray the trust, we will find you and we'll know it's you. Um, thank you so much. I mean, the questions are, yeah, are really, really you. brilliant questions. Thank you very much and clearly for like reading it and engaging in it. So thank you very much for those and for coming. And Satnam, thank you so, so thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of the podcast starred Satnam Sanghera and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were Esme Bright and Dana Outcult, and we make the series with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Special thanks to Freddie Matthews and Rosie Fletcher at The Conduit. If you'd like to find out about future meetings of our book clubs, join our mailing list and explore the upcoming programme at howtoacademy.com. Members of our How To Plus subscription service receive half-price tickets to live events, and all live stream events are free. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com